invite you to turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. And I get to demonstrate tonight that we can cover 30 verses. So don't expect that in the mornings, but in the evenings. This marvelous section of scripture and prophecy. And tonight we really get to set up the first prophecy recorded in the book of Daniel. We get to see the background and the setting. I love to see the example of godly people. I love it when righteousness is on display, when the godly are responding uprightly in a pressure-packed situation, when their righteousness is being demonstrated and you can tell that God is moving in them and through them. It's encouraging to see that. It's, current, it's encouraging to see uh, uncommon character and uncommon conviction being demonstrated in the life of someone who is committing themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, filled with the Spirit, moved by God, demonstrating a love and a faith in God. At the same time, even more than that, while I love to see the righteous walking uprightly, while I love to see God demonstrating His power in difficult circumstances and situations. When God is putting himself on display in the midst of impossible situations and vindicating his power, vindicating his righteousness, his ways, that encourages my heart. And we see both of those on display in our text before us tonight. The demonstration of the wisdom and power of God and the demonstration of faithfulness and righteousness in a man of God. And we'll draw our attention to that tonight. Tonight, as we walk our way through this narrative, I'm going to draw out seven aspects for you that kind of lead us through the narrative. As we go along the way, I'll just make some some highlights here. The first point we start with is in in verse 1, and we see the unusual rest. Notice as verse 1 begins, Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. This is the beginning of this section here. We have just seen in chapter 1 the establishing of Daniel, the first three years of Daniel's time in Babylon, both his captivity, his uh, being taken over to Babylon, and then his ascent as the Lord blessed him. And you see then, by the end of chapter 1, the favor that God laid upon Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. Now, right out of the gate, in the midst of Daniel's time there, we see, as this begins, Nebuchadnezzar has a troubled rest, an unusual rest. You might note, if you see there in verse 1, it says this is the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And you might think to yourself, doing a little math, well, Daniel is in a three-year training program, and this is the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, so that must mean that this is while Daniel is being trained. I'd say not so fast. Your math is correct, but your understanding of the Babylonian culture is not. Actually, this is the third year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, if you were to take from when he actually began. But as far as their official calendar, it's only recognized as Nebuchadnezzar's second year. 
fact, most likely this has begun, this moment here occurred shortly after Daniel's graduation. Shortly after the events in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 1, where Daniel and his friends were recognized as being ten times greater than all of the magicians and conjurers in the realm of Babylon. When Daniel received this prominent place of being an advisor to the king. Now what did happen here in this second year, this is actually about 30 months into Nebuchadnezzar's reign as king. The Babylonians counted the reign of a king from Nisan to Nisan. That is from basically March-April time to March-April. But Nebuchadnezzar died in September 605 B.C. In 605 B.C., September 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar heard of his father's death, left the ramsacking of Jerusalem took with him some captives and some treasures from the temple, and he went back to Babylon to take his rightful place as king over Babylon. Leaving behind his post as general of the Babylonian army, he now takes on and becomes the king of Babylon and reigns on the, on the throne for six months before his official first year. That ascension year doesn't count towards the Babylonian calendar, towards the reign of of Nebuchadnezzar. But he was nonetheless reigning during that time. That's when he established Daniel and the training period that Daniel and his uh, friends would go through. That's when he set up all of the details that we saw in chapter 1. So by this moment here then, in chapter 2, verse 1, this has been about 30 months more than enough time for Daniel to go through his training. More than enough time for, for the king to establish his rule and reign. More than enough time for Daniel to gain the kind of credibility that he had already garnered, a favor that he garnered. This is then the beginning. And uh, at this moment, again, this is an event that occurred right on the heels of Daniel finishing his training. And the text says there that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. It's interesting, it's in the plural there, dreams. The idea, it could mean that Nebuchadnezzar had multiple dreams, or it could mean that he had the same dream reoccurring. And I believe it's the latter that's being emphasized here, that Because later on, Daniel is going to have the same dream and the same vision, and he's going to recount it. So they weren't multiple dreams. It was the same dream given over and over again. And the same dream would wake Nebuchadnezzar up and cause a fright in which he would go back to sleep again, only to have the same dream again to the point that, as the text says at the end of verse 1, his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. It was a terrifying dream. For the Babylonians, a dream, particularly a dream that occurred often, was a troubling sign because a dream was an attempt of one of the gods to try to speak to them. That's why the Babylonians were careful in recording all their dreams. They were careful to analyze them, careful to assess what these dreams meant. For the king to wake up troubled over a persistent dream would be an event in which, again, all of the magicians and conjurers and Chaldeans would want to be a part of finding a solution. So in this case, 
as the text indicates here, Nebuchadnezzar had this had these dreams or the dream many times, and his spirit was troubled and sleep left him. This could be described as he had a nightmare. He was terrified by what he had saw in this dream, and he couldn't go back to sleep. It could quite possibly, because of ultimately what we'll see of this dream, Nebuchadnezzar recognized that this was a threat. Could it have been an assassination? Couldn't it have been an enemy rising up against him? What was the meaning of this dream? The king could not sleep, realizing that at any moment in time, this dream could turn out to be the end of his own life. He had to know what it meant. And he needed an answer immediately. It was this unusual night of rest that caused the chaos that is the rest of chapter 2. I think, again, the difficulty of this reoccurring dream and Nebuchadnezzar believing that this dream meant something that was significant to his own life and rule is demonstrated by the fact that he was troubled and he couldn't sleep, that he was basically terrified. Which leads to the next point, the unreasonable request. We see this in verses 2 through 6. Notice what the text indicates for us there. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in, and they stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. And the king replied to the Chaldeans, The command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But... If you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. This is the unreasonable request. As you can tell by looking at this and in listening to the events, you see from the human standpoint how unreasonable this request is. The king, of course, having this troubled dream in the state of distress, calls in immediately his advisors, the wise men of the time, those who are trained in this very work, and he says to them, you need to be here. Now it's also clear by the events that come out later that Daniel is not here at this point. The young wise man who has just been promoted to his particular role wasn't in this initial group and it becomes evident later as we'll see these are the top advisors to the king and it's made up of different groups four groups that are identified here first the magicians these are the men who would look at the stars the astrologers who would see in the stars maps and those maps those directions in the stars would be what they would use to guide themselves so the magicians were those who looked to the stars to look for guidance from the gods then you had the conjurers these are those who would draw up spells and seances with an attempt to speak to the gods 
Then you had the sorcerers. These were those who would practice witchcraft, who would try to reveal the will of God, of the gods through witchcraft. They would use herbs and potions to indicate what they were to do next. And then lastly, you had the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans could refer to a particular class of people, an ethnic group, but more specifically, it was a group of wise men who would rely upon the occult for supernatural direction. Basically, these four groups of individuals were used to telling the will of the gods, how to speak to the gods, how to interact with the gods, so that you can find out the will of the gods and how you are to operate. If there was any group of people who could have given an answer to the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar was having, it should have been this group right here. You're used to talking to the gods. You're used to being able to give the will of the gods. You are, after all, the Babylonian brain trust. Tell me then what my dream is and tell me what it means. That was Nebuchadnezzar's exhortation to them. You're the religious elites. You're the people who say you speak for the gods. You're the people who give me direction and counsel. Now it's time for you to prove your worth. I love verse 3 there. Again, the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand this dream. I have to know what it means. That's why I've called you here. I can't sleep. I have to know what this means. You must tell me. And again, I believe at this point, in, at the beginning here, in verse 3 and 4, pretty confident the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans are feeling a little comfortable. We got this. It's when he says to them, I'm not telling you the dream, you tell me the dream and its interpretation that I can imagine that the blood rushed out of their face. They went a bit pale. So they begin to recognize this is a problem. And then on top of that, when the condemnation came, if you don't, I'm going to have you torn to pieces. Notice again in this text then, as we move through these verses, These individuals are going to make three requests to the king, each time getting a little more uh, anxious in the attempt to get to an answer. This is the first request here in verses 2 through 6 recorded. And there in verse 4, again, the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare you the interpretation. And from verse 4, the middle of verse 4, this is where the text turns to the Aramaic. And from 2-4 through chapter 7, the end, it's in Aramaic. This is a direction, a conversation to the Gentile nation. To Gentiles, this is for them, for them to hear. And there, the, these conjurers, these magicians, they want to hear the dream Because in hearing it, they can then begin to explain what is going on. You get the sense at this particular point that they have a measure of confidence. They believe that they could could give an answer, that they were going to explain the will of the gods. Until, of course, the king gives them the unreasonable response. 
when the king starts to demonstrate his skepticism in their abilities. And again, from an earthly standpoint, there's a lot of reason to have skepticism for these individuals. And this is the first time, of course, when the king begins to demonstrate this skepticism. Notice verse 5. Here's what makes it the difficult. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation. It's like, at this point, the Chaldeans like, and the magicians and conjurers is, we can explain the dream. That's the easy part. The hard part is the first part. Telling you a dream that we have not had and that we do not know. That's the hard part. And that is exactly what the, the king is demonstrating at this particular point. I want you to be able to tell me what this dream is and what its interpretation is. If you cannot do both, then I will have you destroyed. And I believe at this point, this is when Nebuchadnezzar begins to show what he is all about. The kind of commander. And again, remember, he was a general of the Babylonian armies. At the time, the most powerful army in the known world. The army that had conquered the Ninevites. The army that had drove the Egyptians back to Egypt. The army that had conquered Jerusalem. This army was unstoppable and he was the commander of that army. So he's used to declaring to people what he wanted. He's used to getting what he wanted. And he was clearly here a no-nonsense kind of guy. General of armies. If you don't tell me my dream, you're going to die. And it's not enough that you're going to die. You're going to die slowly. I'm going to have you torn apart. And I'm going to have your houses torn down. And on top of that, they're going to be made a rubbish pile. If you're to use 2 Kings chapter 10.27, it means you're going to be, your houses are going to be made a latrine. Your house is going to be utterly a waste. Which would imply not only would the magicians, conjurers, etc. face the judgment, their families as well would face this judgment. This was a serious request. To them, the conjurers, the magicians, the Chaldeans, it was unreasonable. But to Nebuchadnezzar himself, it was very reasonable. If you were men of God... If you guys speak for gods, know the will of the gods, can communicate to the gods, have interaction with the gods, then you ought to be able to communicate what the gods are trying to communicate to me here. Nebuchadnezzar's mind, this is a very reasonable request, but to the wise men of the day, this is a very unreasonable request. I think the king, recognizing the severity of the event, also gives the promise, verse 6, but if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Of course, the wise men would love to have the rewards and the honor that would come, but you can tell the tension is rising because of the severe consequence This leads us to the third point, the unrelenting requirement. The unrelenting requirement, verses 7 through 9. They answered a second time, 
And they said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. And the king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. This is, again, where Nebuchadnezzar demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt, I don't trust you. I don't trust your words. I don't trust your actions. In order for me to trust your ability to interpret the dream, you must tell me what dream I had. He is skeptical. Why must they tell him the dream? Well, it could have been because he forgot. You know know how it is. You wake up in the morning and you're like, I had an amazing dream last night. And your spouse asks you, what? And it's like, I don't know. I don't remember it. You have this state where I can't quite, I, can't, I know it's something significant. I know I woke up in a different frame of mind, but I don't remember the details. It could have been, in that sense, likelihood that this has been repeated over and over again. He remembered the details. He's just terrified about what it is and what it means and he doesn't want to share the details lest there be somebody who can take advantage of that information. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar goes into full skepticism mode. We could say he goes full-on paranoid. He is now trusting no one around him, and he is going to demand that these truth-tellers, these speakers of the wills of the gods, communicate clearly with him or else they are going to perish. Tell me, in verse 9, that I may know that you can declare to me the interpretation. This is the key for them. The end of verse 9 is what's the burden for Nebuchadnezzar here. I have to know that you know how to handle what I am experiencing here. That's his concern. And he is unrelenting in this request. He wants to know that they have the ability to properly interpret this dream. Otherwise, as he says there, you're lying, you're stalling for time, you're trying to work together to speak against me and to, to speak lies to me. And again, they are losing credibility after every time they open their mouth. Again, it wouldn't be a problem if they actually were able to do what they say they're able to do. They're actually able to speak to the gods, if they're actually able to understand the will of the gods, if the dreams actually reveal what the will of the gods are, and these are the ones who speak with the gods, they ought to be able to do this very simple thing of tell him what the gods said. Well, this leads to the fourth point, the unrestrained fury The unrestrained fury. We see that in verses 10 through verse 13. Notice, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. 
Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. And because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And so the decree went forth and the wise men, that the wise men should be slain and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. This is again now in these verses the third time the Chaldeans and the magicians and the conjurers had asked the king for the dream. And it was the third time that the king had refuted them and said that he is not going to give them the dream. They are going to have to explain it to him first. Tell him the dream first, and then he would, and then its interpretation. Now, it's rather interesting here. Verse 10 through 13, verse basically 10 and 12, 10 and 11 they are cornered. They are in this tense, stressful situation. They are realizing the clock is ticking and the threat is coming. And they decide in their infinite wisdom that they're going to turn the tables and rebuke the king. Notice they make three rebukes to him. This is their desperate plan now at this point. This is the Hail Mary intimidate him off of his stance. Here's what they do. First of all, they acknowledge that the request is impossible. Notice there in verse 10. There is not a man on earth who, dec- who could declare the matter for the king. This is impossible. There's no way. There's no way in the whole world that this can happen. Again, uh, mind you, that this is only demonstrating their own fraudulent activity. There are, indeed, there is no man who could do this. But you aren't representing men. You guys are supposed to be those who talk to the gods. You're supposed to know the will of the gods. You're supposed to unfold the mystery of the gods. You're the ones who are supposed to tell us what the gods want. Yeah, no man can do it, but you are the ones who are supposed to have the direct connection to the gods. Of course it's impossible. Why did I bring you here? I didn't bring you here because I needed man's help. You're supposed to come and give us the understanding of the gods. But their acknowledgement here demonstrated their own fraudulent behavior. Again, because they recognized it was impossible. No man can do this. So the Chaldeans attacked the king, saying, you're making an impossible request. It's unfair. You can't make this impossible request. And then that, that leads us to the second exhortation or rebuke of them. This request is unfair. Notice this. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of a magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. King, no one has ever asked this. 
A lot of great kings have come before you. Your father never asked us to do anything like this. So why were you asking of this? As if to turn a little guilt trip on him. You don't understand, king. It's, uh, this isn't normal for kings to ask things like this of the wise men. No one treated us like this. No one asked us to do these kinds of things. That's not how magicians and conjurers and Chaldeans work. That is their, their response. Don't be unfair to us. That's their response. Don't test us. I love this, how charlatans work this way. When the guy is saying, I can heal you. All right, well, let's go to the hospital. Let's walk down the, let's walk down the, you know, the aspects of the hospital where there's truly sick people. And let's raise some dead people. Oh, you, you can't do that. You can't work that way. Really, there's some sick children here. Let's go heal them. Well, it doesn't work that way. Oh, yeah, exactly. Because, again, the, the charlatan cannot stand to be exposed. It's unfair. It doesn't work like that. You didn't have enough faith. It's something, a problem in you. It's not in us. And that was their response here in verse 9. King, you can't ask of this, and I love that phrase, because no great king or ruler has ever asked for this. Almost subtly questioning him, what kind of king are you if you have to ask this great request? And notice their last exhortation or rebuke. This request is too difficult for men. Moreover, the thing which the king demanded is difficult. And there was no one else who could declare to the king except the gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. We can't do it. It's impossible. It's too difficult. I mean, at this moment, those individuals, those conjurers, those magicians, those Chaldeans had to have listened to the words coming out of their mouth because ultimately what they're saying at that point is, we are frauds. We can't give you any answers. It's impossible with, with us, and only gods can give answers. And yeah, we've been telling you we talk to the gods, but we don't. We have no idea. It is absolutely no surprise then, verse 12. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious. Naturally. They just called out his credibility. They just admitted that they were frauds. They just tried to put a guilt trip on him as if to say to him, it's in, you shouldn't make this kind of request. Of course he became indignant. Of course he became angry. Of course he demonstrated his fury. I actually chuckled to myself, reading various commentators that were talking about Nebuchadnezzar being sinfully angry here. Sinfully angry? I think this is a bit of a righteous indignation, if you ask me. There's a sense that here a group of fraudulent spiritual hacks came in and attempted to try to lead them astray. And he called them out. In fact, what I see demonstrated in Nebuchadnezzar's request is a profound wisdom. All right, I need God's help. 
I need God's wisdom, God's understanding, God's revelation. I need a man of God to come and tell me the will of God. And how will I find that man? Well, by somebody coming and telling me the dream and the interpretation of the dream. Then I know God is speaking. That's wisdom. It's a brilliant man. And then a man, of course, in this particular case, who is not has no patience for the fraudulent spiritual hack. And he demonstrates that there. He sends forth a decree to wipe out all the wise men, destroy them all, even Daniel and his friends. It's time to clean house. It's time to remove all these frauds. It's time to start over and find new people for the gods to speak to me because these are liars. These are useless to me. And naturally, if they're useless and liars, remove them. This particular point, Daniel's promotion to wise men isn't looking too good. Not exactly thrilled to get that promotion, but here he was now being under the same judgment as the rest of the wise men of the land. Nebuchadnezzar demonstrating at this particular point in his fury that, again, he was not going to put up with those who were incompetent and lying to him. He wasn't going to be hoodwinked by a bunch of religious frauds. He was going to seek the truth. And again, as I said, I appreciate that response. I appreciate the kind of response that tests the truth, the kind of response that seeks to understand and to know, the kind of response that that evaluates what is said in practice and measures it. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did here. This leads us then to the next point, the unrivaled revealer. The unrivaled revealer. We see this in verses 14 through 19. Here's what the text says. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. And he said to Arioch, the king of the commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah about the matter. And so they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Noticed the unrivaled revealer. The king sends forth his executioner, by the name of Arioch, he is the captain of the king's bodyguard. He goes around and he goes to kill off all the wise men. It's very likely by the statement that those initial wise men are, who were in the presence of the king are dead. Now he is going about and killing the rest. 
And it's interesting, verse 14, when Daniel says there that he replied, and this is Daniel reflecting back on that particular event and how he describes his reply, he replied with discretion and discernment. He, descri- he replied in such a way, understanding this was a tense situation. It's very likely that Arioch, heading there, wasn't just going to round up these wise men. He was going out with sword drawn, ready to kill them on the spot. Just to systematically work through all the wise men to put them to death. And Daniel, seeing the commander coming, seeing this, this troop of soldiers coming to put to death the wise men, sees the situation, understands its tense, and immediately responds with the appropriate kind of discretion and discernment. Wisely, he responds. Not elevating the situation, carefully considering the response. He is acting not in fear, but in faith. He is acting now in such a way as to try to speak with a kind of wisdom that would protect his life and that of his friends. It's interesting, again, as... Daniel records his own response as with discretion and discernment. It's very likely that Daniel had a much longer conversation that was recorded here, but Daniel only records the significant details just enough to say, all right, disarm the situation, understand the matter, give a solution. And Daniel's house, again, here in Daniel's house, is a trained military professional professional ready to do what he does best to Daniel. So Daniel had to choose his words very carefully, and Daniel's words are these. For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Why are you carrying out this activity with great haste? What is so urgent? Daniel wants to understand And of course, by the very fact that he didn't know is an indication that he wasn't part of that main group of wise men. Being a young member of it, he was on the outside, so he wasn't called into the early meeting with the king. And you see the first expression of grace, or at least another expression of grace to Daniel, because Arioch actually takes the time to show Daniel favor and gives him an answer. Tells them. Arioch tells them of the king's situation, that this decree has gone forth to slay them because of the, the vision. To which then Daniel does verse 16. He asks for time. He asks for the very thing that the Babylonian wise men were accused of, stalling for time. He just asked for time. That was verse 16. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time. Uh, There is some confusion here with this particular phrase, some textual difficulties, and some texts don't have the phrase he went in. It could have been the idea that he sent forth a request. And I think that's the idea, that he actually sent forth an official request and give us time. Give us some moments to draw up and understand what is going on. 
I think this is, makes the best sense that he sends out an official request for more time because of when he actually finally gets into the presence of the king, he has to be introduced, and the king asks him if he is capable of this. So, of course, I think Daniel here asks for more time, and this is the second expression of favor. He has granted this time so that he could figure out what the dream is. It's the grace of God. Now, we come to the unrivaled revealer. Once Daniel asks for more time, is granted more time, he is spared from execution. Verse 17 indicates the first thing that he does is that he heads to the house of his friends and he informs his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter. And notice why. So that... Verse 18, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. We need to seek the will of God. We need to seek the favor of God. Daniel doesn't do this alone. Daniel understands the severity of the event. He understands the significance of the event. He understands what's on the line. His life is on the line. His friends' lives are on the line. And in this, he says, Go with me before God to seek compassion. Again, this is a righteous man's response. Let us go together to God to get God's favor. That God would show us compassion. That he would show us mercy. This is, to say the least, the tension of the text indicates that this is a life and death moment for Daniel. And in the last few years, we've faced difficulties historically. The church has faced a lot of unique situations. But it hasn't got to this level. Yeah, there have been threats of different pastors being taken out of their church and thrown into jail, different threats from churches being shut down, etc. But it hadn't yet gotten to the point around our time where it is life and death. But that was the scenario for Daniel here. Life and death. No dream, no interpretation, they will lose their life. No dream, no understanding what took place took place, then they are frauds just like the rest. Their credibility is called out. No dream, no interpretation of the dream, then their God is no different than the other gods. No dream, no interpretation. Their lives, their reputation, their God is mercilessly destroyed by a king who's had enough with spiritual frauds. That's what's on the line for Daniel and his friends at this point. And so he seeks his friends. And then lastly, verse 19, he goes. And as it says, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. What was impossible for men was not impossible for God. God revealed it. I want you to understand here, again, then Daniel responds at the end there, verse 19, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. The immediate response was that of, again, praise and adoration to God. But think about this in regards to the answered prayer. First, there was the threat, the difficult situation. Then there was the careful request. 
Then there was the prayerful entreaty of the friends. And then finally came the answer. You know, sometimes the Lord is slow in giving the answer to the prayer because he is building up and establishing his own credibility and his own work. We're wanting to rush the details. This particular case, there was an increasingly difficult case that was growing and Daniel responding in faith until God ultimately gave the answer. And indeed, God showed compassion. He gave mercy to Daniel and his friends. He set Daniel apart for this particular moment to demonstrate his wisdom, his power through Daniel. This leads to the sixth point, the unhindered prayer. The unhindered prayer, verses 20 through 23. Notice that prayer. Then Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and the hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God my, of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what, you request, what we request of you, for you have made notice, known to us the king's matter. Look, this is certainly a prayer of Daniel of praise to God, but it is also a corporate prayer which Daniel and his friends are making. And there at the end of verse 23, again, you have made known to me what, you re- what we request of you. Verse, the last stanza there, for you have made known to us the king's matter. This is Daniel and his friends praising God for God's response. It's unhindered. It's it's. Uh, full of worship and adoration. It's full of praise to God for God's graciousness and kindness. And there's a little hint of what is to come because in this prayer there's an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty in directing the nations, a prayer of acknowledgement of God's wisdom and there's none like Him, a prayer acknowledging that God is all-powerful and none can stop Him, that He reveals mysteries that no man has understanding of, that He has unrivaled knowledge, that He is pure and perfect, and that He, the result of all of this is to give praise. An overflowing gratitude to, from Daniel to God for God's graciousness in this situation. Daniel, again, responds in praise and adoration. I love this. Again, there was prayer to start the request, and then prayer once it was answered. It was constant adoration to God. And it was, what I like as well, is the corporate activity here. This is together, not just Daniel alone pursuing, but Daniel pursuing the help of his fellow comrades to seek this out. I think this is important for us to recognize that in difficult circumstances and situations, when it's too impossible for us, the appropriate response is prayer to God. We need help. 
We need God's work. And then when he demonstrates his faithfulness, the appropriate response is turn around and praising God for all that he is doing and all that he is accomplishing. This leads us to the last point, verses 24 through 30. The unflappable reporter. The unflappable reporter. See, I got two each time. Here we are. Notice verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and he spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Let's stop right there for a second. Notice Daniel's response. It's, it's really amazing. He requests of Arioch, stop killing the wise men. Spare them. Stop it. I mean, there is a sense in this that Daniel has just received from God compassion and mercy. And his request is, show compassion and mercy to them. I think there's a good example in that. That Daniel, the receiver of compassion, is also the giver of compassion. Those who receive great love are those who ought to be giving great love. And this demonstrates the character of Daniel. Go on to verse 25, and then notice Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as following. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Look <laughs> at this. I've done it, he says. This is funny how Arioch takes the credit. I found the guy. It's like, wait a second, I didn't send you out to find the guy. I sent you to go out and kill all my guys. No, I found the guy. And he is able to give you the interpretation. He is able to make known to you. Again, he is taking all the credit to himself here. And you see, this is significant in light of what Daniel's about to do. Arioch taking credit for something that he wasn't even charged to do. Again, that's something only God can give an answer to. He is here now taking credit. I found a man who can do this. Verse 26, the king answered and he said to Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? I think there is a measure of intrigue here from Nebuchadnezzar. There's a measure of skepticism, a measure of doubt and uncertainty, a measure in which he is wondering, is this possible that I can actually finally get an answer to this terrifying dream? And now Daniel's answer. Daniel answered, verse 27, before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. 
This was your dream and the vision in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would have or what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, the mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man. But for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Notice Daniel here. It's just such a contrast between Daniel and Arioch. Arioch taking personal credit for what he has done. I found the man. Daniel saying, this isn't for me. This isn't to prop me up. This isn't from me. It's not from me. I'm not the source of this. This message is from God. And this message from God is for you. Daniel sees himself appropriately as just a messenger, a delivery agent, one who is carrying a message from one source to another, taking no personal credit at all, not exalting himself, not taking any credit, not making himself wiser than anyone else in the land. He's demonstrating the limitations of all wise men on earth in comparison to God, and he shows the greatness of what is taking place. King, you just saw a great vision to tell you what is about to take place. What will take place in a, there's a couple of phrases there in regards to this. Yeah, at the end of verse 29, O king, while you're on your bed, your thoughts turn to what will take place in the future, literally in the end. You have seen unto the end we're going to see next week, you are going to see until the end of the time of the Gentiles. You have seen from now, the beginning of the reign of the Gentiles, to the very end of the reign of the Gentiles, you have seen that whole period. You're seeing about what is to take place. You just saw the whole course of human history and all the details that were to take place, and the God of heaven revealed that great vision to you. It's not my vision, Daniel says. It's not my wisdom. This is the wisdom of God. And he gave this knowledge, he gave this understanding, not for me in the lifting up of me. He gave this knowledge to you, great king. He gave it to you that you would know. And that's why he has, as he says there in verse 30, that's why he has made the mystery known to me so that I would give you understanding. To give you the interpretation so that you may, at the end of verse 30, so that you may understand the thoughts of your own mind. That you would get it. The king, at this point, has been given a remarkable vision that lasted from 602 BC to some point in the future has not fully been yet completed to the time of the return of the Messiah when the Messiah sets up his kingdom. That was the vision period that he has been given here. Profound. Daniel, again, this humble servant, 
gets out of the way so that the greatness of God would be on display. Next week when we come back, we'll look at that prophecy and begin to unpack this significant event that caused Nebuchadnezzar great distress on his bed as he sleep left him. But it is a vision of God's work in the Gentile nations until the completion of the time of the Gentiles. What can we learn from this text? Well, this. First thing we learn is God has no rivals. God has no rivals. He does the impossible. He's not limited by what man is limited by. He directs all events according to his purposes, that he knows the end from the beginning, and he declares all those things, and that our hope should rest in him. In him. And the second thing we learn from this marvelous text is that the man of God gets out of the way so that God can be richly on display. We demonstrate the wisdom of God when we carefully communicate and we're prayerfully dependent upon him and when we're humble enough to get out of the way. And I pray that we learn that through this marvelous text. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much just for this introduction to the marvelous prophecy that we will see next week in the statue and the image that you brought to the mind of Nebuchadnezzar. We certainly see spiritual frauds. We understand there are many who pretend to speak for you. And you have a way of exposing their hearts, revealing their pride, exposing their work, especially as you demonstrate your purposes and your will. So we pray, train our hearts to trust in your will, to know your ways, to constantly seek you, to seek your face, and to seek your word so that we would not be ashamed in our counsel and advice, so that we would not be afraid, that we would trust. For indeed, you show compassion and mercy to your people and preserve and protect them. But we're most comforted as we walk in faith, trusting in you, for we know that you are the one orchestrating all things after the counsel of your will, according to your good purposes. And so you, may you raise up among us men and women who strive to walk in the same example as Daniel, filled with prayer, humbly dependent upon you, trusting in you with full and rich faith, knowing that in the appropriate season, at the appropriate time, you will vindicate us. We need not to seek for our own protection, our own will, because we know you to be good and you will care for us, your people. May you be richly on display in us and through us. May the greatness of your purposes be demonstrated as we proclaim your ways and as we walk according to your ways. And certainly we anticipate the fulfillment of these very visions, that you will accomplish what you have said you will accomplish. And may we have a front row seat watching all these things unfold. Until that time, help us to walk in faith and give you all praise. It's in your name we pray. Amen.